Hello, greetings, and welcome to another edition of The New and Living Way, a Hebrews podcast. We begin in Hebrews chapter 1 and in verse 4. Having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. For to which of the angels did God ever say, You are my son, today I have begotten you. Or again, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. And again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, Let all God's angels worship him. Of the angels, he says, he makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. But of the Son, he says, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of your uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. And you, Lord, lay the foundation of the earth in the beginning, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment. Like a robe you will roll them up. Like a garment they will be changed. But you are the same, and your years will have no end. And to which of the angels has he ever said, Sit at my right hand, until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? So thus we have the rest of chapter 1 of the letter to the Hebrews, uh, the sermon letter that we've been discussing. Uh, We've seen uh, it's very hard to identify a lot about the situation. We know that the author is a Jewish Christian who is very fluent in Greek and uh, skilled in Greek rhetoric. We know his audience are Christians who are growing weary in their faith, having before demonstrated a great confidence in faith, but now are growing weary. Uh, We know these things, and we know it's being written somewhere between the death of Jesus and the year 90, more likely somewhere in the 60s. Um, There's other theories about that and all kinds of different ways of putting it together, but we're trying to keep it uh, as much to what we can know as possible as we explore our various interpretive possibilities. And we have seen this beautiful beginning, uh, what we call the exordium, the introduction uh, to the whole discourse, and really which will become the thesis for the whole letter, whole sermon. And we saw how God is the subject, how he has, God spoke to our fathers at many times in many ways, uh, but in these last days has spoken in the Son. And the rest of the passage is about the Son. And so throughout the letter we're going to see in this message the, uh, the superiority of what is in Christ versus what has come before. And we will see how everything he has to say here about Jesus, that he is the heir of all things, through whom he created the world, the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature, upholding the universe by the word of his power, having purified for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. We're going to see this play out in chapter 1 and throughout the rest of the letter. One of the great rhetorical uh, power, uh, forces of power in uh, the sermon letter is in the Hebrews author's ability to make transitions. Anybody who has spent time in writing or in public speaking will tell you how challenging transitions can be. And the Hebrews author's transitions are so tight that uh, they're really hinges, uh, where they're just as important to what comes uh, before as what comes after. Normally when we kind of break up 
and try to break up the text. We, we put chapter, verse 4 with verses 5 through 14, and yet verse 4 is still part of the sentence uh, that has begun in verse uh, 1. And so we have a, a, a transition here where the first premise that the Hebrews author is really going to focus on, it would seem, is how superior to angels uh, the name of Jesus has become. And so he will go through now, and from verses 5 through 13, he's going to set forth a series of verses from all over the Old Testament, from the Psalms, from 2 Samuel, from Deuteronomy, and he just lays them all out. He doesn't spend time interpreting them. He asks rhetorical questions about a couple of them. Uh, He just leaves these out for the uh, audience to hear. And what he's doing is consistent with the time. Uh, among the Dead Sea Scrolls, we have found from K4, uh, it's called 4Q Flora Legium and 4Q Testimonia. And they are um, documents that just have quotations of scriptures all together. And in fact, um, one of them has a lot of the messianic quote-unquote quotation, uh, quotations. Many of them uh, things the Hebrews author will be quoting at various times demonstrating that this is a, a customary thing, uh, keeping proof text, so to speak, or, or primar- primarily used text and emphasized text to maintain, uh, to use in various forms of argumentation. You might think it's strange to call it argumentation here, considering that he's just laying out a series of quotes and leaving the hearer or the reader to try to draw some conclusions. And it's extremely skillfully done because as we're going to see, there's a lot more said here about Jesus than merely that he is superior to the angels. Why would there be this concern about angels? Um, Some commentators in the past have suggested that maybe what the situation is, that the audience of the Hebrew letter is falling for something like what is imagined to be part of the Colossian heresy, where in Colossians chapter 2, Paul has to warn the Christians in Colossae regarding um, falling prey to visions and worshiping angels and things like that. And so maybe here you've got some people who are worshiping angels. And that possibility has generally been discounted of recently, because if really that's the challenge in the situation, the Hebrews author is spectacularly bad at addressing it. Uh, This is the only part of the book where we have this emphasis on angels. And once we move on, there's only going to be a couple more references to angels, and they're generally positive. Uh, He's not really addressing this situation very much. Uh, So that's generally been discounted. Um, But we have to remember that even though now in the church there tends to be some controversy about these kind of subjects... The majority view during the late Second Temple period in Judaism prominently featured angels as sons of God. In fact, that's the phrase used of them in Job chapter 1. Um, in the Septuagint of Deuteronomy 32.43, that's what's present and actually going to become a basis for one of the quotations here uh, that the Hebrews author is going to use, uh, talking about let all God's angels worship him. And uh, very likely, at least in the understanding of the time, Genesis 6, uh, consistent with First Enoch and the kind of currents going on in uh, Second Temple Judaism, 
that these angels take this very prominent role. And we have a lot of angelology at that time. And, and not just looking at angels as the cherubim and seraphim uh, of Old Testament, uh, terrifying uh, creatures that are surrounding the throne of God, but as these uh, messengers of God who will come to provide material aid for people, uh, who may stand as powers over principalities in nations like the Prince of Persia in Daniel chapter 10, and uh, we start getting names of them, uh, Gabriel, uh, Michael, uh, and then also Raphael and other names like that. But Gabriel and Michael we will see used in some of the Old Testament works and in the New Testament as well. And these views, uh, while they may are, seem apocryphal to us, definitely are part of the world of the first century, part of the background of the Hebrews author, and very much also influencing many of our New Testament texts, and therefore likely has some legitimacy in the sight of God. And so when you hear about angels as sons of God, and now you've heard there's the Son of God, you know, we can definitely see where there might be some levels of connection and association. So it's not entirely crazy to, to feel the need to sort this out. And without what the Hebrews author is doing in chapter 1 and chapter 2 about these things, uh, it may not be as evident to us as it is, seems to be evident to us anymore. But let's look at how he goes about this. Uh, so he begins, For what, To which of the angels did God ever say? And then he quotes, You are my son, today I have begotten you. Or again, I shall be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. Uh, these come from Psalm 2-7 and 2 Samuel 7-14, respectively. One of the important things that we have recovered in more modern times that sometimes was neglected is the realization that when an apostle or an early Christian quotes or cites a Old Testament passage, he's not merely referring to what is quoted. There are some times where there might be a conscious rhetorical choice in what is quoted and what isn't. And sometimes we can learn something from that. And certain you know, interpretive directions are changed. And we will see the Hebrews author do that, even within this passage. But we at least need to appreciate that the entire context is in view. And so in Psalm 2, in verse 7, the second psalm is a psalm of enthronement. It is uh, written regarding the Davidic king. We can imagine it being sung at his coronation, where all the nations are raging, but God has made the decree, and he is considering the king as his son, and that he has begotten him this day. And it's important to understand that, because this is not, according to Arianism, the idea that Jesus is a created creature of God. We've already seen in verse 2 that uh, God has created the world through him, therefore he is not part of the creation, and as we're going to see, the angels are to worship him, uh, which is what no creation, been part of the creation, should receive. Uh, so it's an enthronement psalm, and that helps us understand the nature of the begetting. The begetting here is a means of which we communicate um, the getting of power and establishment as power. That he is declared the Son of God in the resurrection from the dead, as Paul will say in Romans 1, 4 through 5. And, and this is how he is enthroned and will maintain his power forever. In 2 Samuel, this is when David has desired to build a temple, and uh, he is told by Nathan uh, through God, God through Nathan, no, it's not for you to do that, but I will establish your son, and his kingdom will have no end. And I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me as a son. And so he's very much going back to that Davidic king 
and that no angel was going to be this Davidic king who has all of this authority. Uh, this is, of course, uh, looking most thoroughly at Jesus. And even in quoting those passages and having them refer to Jesus, we're seeing this use of these passages, which in their original context would have been seen about perhaps Solomon or later Davidic kings being used for Jesus. Psalm 2 in particular, a common uh, passage quoted by Christians. Uh, we see that already used by Paul in Acts chapter 13. And so then we have verse 6. Again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, let all God's angels worship him. The end again, some are trying to say this is kind of bringing him back for a second time. It's most likely, as used later, bringing on quotation after quotation. Uh, the firstborn, um, God, Jesus is the firstborn of God, does not mean that he is actually born of God as if God gave birth to him, as if he is the creation. Uh, there's a spiritual type of begetting that is beyond our understanding, the, the sonship of, of the Son uh, forever before the Father. And this is, again, about prominence. Uh, the firstborn is the prominent one, the one who has been given the standing and the authority. In this quote here, some have seen perhaps some Psalm uh, 97 in, uh, from in our Bibles, Psalm 96 in the Greek, has some association with it. But most likely, it is coming from Deuteronomy 32:43. some additional concepts that are there in the uh, Septuagint that are not necessarily there in your Hebrew text, uh, which actually has been verified in some uh, Dead Sea Scrolls copies of Deuteronomy, that all God's angels, the sons of God, are to worship him. Very important part about that is that he is receiving worship, as we said. He must be part of the creator, not the creation. This is going to be part of the secondary argument that the Hebrews author is making by putting all these quotations together. But of the angels, he says, so now he's going to, okay, notice we're talking about the sun. Now we're going to talk about angels. He makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. That's coming out of Psalm 104. What's really important about our purposes with Psalm 104 and his use of Psalm 104 there is that the Hebrew text doesn't exactly read that way. Uh, the Hebrew text reads, He makes the winds his messengers and the flaming fire his attendant, uh, where the psalmist is glorifying how God is able to use the natural creation uh, as his representatives, as his messengers. So it's these natural forces that are angels, quote-unquote, in, in the text. But we have from the Greek here, and what the Hebrews author is playing with, is that the angels are made winds, and his ministers a flame of fire. Um, where it's kind of switched a little bit, so now the angels are spoken of as these things. And it's a part, again, part of the metaphorical use of God using agents as, angels excuse me, as his agents. That's what god is about with the angels if they're being used by god as his agents they are not at the level of the sun and we have that contrast here on the one hand of the angels this is what he says but on the other hand regarding the sun he has to say something different and i can attest personally as somebody who uh learned Greek according to the Attic classical style more than the Koine style that uh, the Hebrews author uh, use of uh, on the one hand on the other hand here uh, made my heart glad uh, because so many times it becomes very loosely used uh, later on uh, the Hebrews author is much more tight uh, like it was in previous days uh, so that was certainly a, a beautiful thing for me personally. Uh, regardless of the sun, so this is a contrast. On the one hand, this is true of angels. On the other hand, of the sun, he said, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. 
and a righteous scepter is the scepter of your kingdom. And he continues on, uh, God, your God, has anointed you over your companions with the oil of rejoicing. This is a very bold claim. We, we see this and we uh, uh, may not think of anything of it. We might just pass over it. But when we look at Psalm 45, Psalm 45 is a love song. It is a love song of the Korites, sons of Korah. Um, of this king and his bride, and the bride of the king is is glorying in the beauty of the king, and um, we have your th- the idea here. Uh, this reason, God, your God, has anointed you. It's most like an intensifier that God is your God and has anointed you the oil of joy, elevating you above your companions, because your king they're not, and you get you know the queen and, and and everything that goes along with that, right? And the Hebrews author takes this. And in a rhetorical tour de force, looks at us, you know, God, your God, where now it's not a queen or queen to be speaking to her king, it's now the father speaking to the son. But of the son, he says, Your throne is forever and ever, righteous scepter, scepter of your kingdom. So taking what was for the Davidic king and now making it about the reign that the son will have uh, and that he will have this. Um, oil of rejoicing anointed on him over the, his companions. Uh, the companions ostensibly might be, of course, the angels, uh, although they're not really companions as we understand. Uh, so it's really taking that and going a different direction with it. And um, the last quotation, um, not last, about, the, about the, the, in this contrast, I should say, uh, is that... Uh, of the sun that you, Lord, laid the foundation in the beginning, the works, heavens are the work of your hands. All of this is coming from Psalm 102. Again, speaking to God. And now the Hebrews author saying that the father saying this about the son. Um, and notice, of course, they will perish, you will remain. They will wear out like a garment. You are the same. Your years will have no end. Hebrews 13, 8, at the end of the, of the message, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And so he, he's probably pulling that from here, from the psalm, reappropriating the psalm from a praise of a believer to God, from now to the Father to the Son, and talking about the fact that the Son has never changed. The Hebrews author will later talk about how Jesus has uh, grown perfect through his experience, and yet he is the same. He has not changed. He is fully human, fully God. And yet, the Hebrews author is able to say he has not changed, and he will have no end of years. And that's a very poignant idea. The ultimate last quotation, going back to, of which of the angels has he ever said, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Psalm 110 and verse 1. Going right back to the kind of quotation he's almost made there in verse 3. That he has given all authority. And of course, in Psalm 110, which Jesus himself quoted and talked about, Peter uses, Paul uses, everybody goes to Psalm 110. You've got in there uh, that he is at the right hand of the power on high and that he is going to be high priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. The Hebrews author then concludes by explaining the purpose of angels, that they're ministering spirits that are to serve those inheriting salvation. They have a place in God's economy. They are servants, but the Son is more excellent than they. Two final things about what's going on here. Note that, yes, we have just seen how the Son is made 
uh, superior to the angels. But in the putting, putting all these together, he's making an incontrovertible argument from the scriptures about the fact that Jesus is God. And he has proven his exordium without you know, even necessarily knowing it. Uh, sit at my right hand so I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. He never said that to angels, therefore he's saying it of the Son, and thus the Son has sat down at the right hand of majesty on high. That they will perish, you will remain, you lay the foundation of the earth at the beginning, the heavens will work your hands, so the Son is the one through whom he created the world. That God would say that to someone else means that it is talking about his Son. Uh, his throne is forever and ever. Um, he has, you've been anointed uh, with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. Uh, all of these things associate with the radiance of the glory of God, uh, that he is the exact imprint of his nature. He upholds the universe by the word of his power, and that he has made purifications for sins. And of course, you are my son. Today I begotten you, that now God has spoken to us today in the Son. That this is the Hebrews author. Very subtle. You know, it wouldn't work well in a polemical situation. But it, if you're attuned to it, you hear, Jesus is God. There's nowhere else for him to go. And of course, that's the whole point of the idea. If he is superior to angels, where who's superior to angels? Well, there's God. There's no real space between God and angels here. Uh, and so if he's not an angel and he's above the angels, he must be God. But we really haven't answered the question, why does the Hebrews author make this argument? And uh, it's an important question. It's hard to make a full, definitive conclusion. But there was one idea that I thought was very interesting to throw out here, that um, possibly the audience, having heard so much about Jesus, the Son of Man, Jesus and his sufferings, that they were so focused on the human Jesus that they kind of took him for granted and neglected the fact that he is God, that he is greater than the angels. And... I like that idea, not because I necessarily think that is definitely what's going on, but because today, modern Christians tend to come at it from the other emphasis. We are so convinced of Jesus' divinity that it's hard for us to see him in his humanity. And we have to often prove to people that he's also human. He's fully human like fully God, not the way to prove people that he is uh, as fully God as he is fully human. And for us to go through that mental exercise, okay, what if we overemphasize Jesus' humanity to the neglect of his divinity, and what would cause that to be a reason for despair? Well, uh, sure, there's a suffering, but where's the hope? Where's the confidence? And to me, also, this is the, the, the powerful message of, of this section. If any of us were to have an angel of the Lord appear to us right now, our faces would be flat on the ground and we'd probably wet our pants. Uh, we would be terrified. We would be overwhelmed and overawed at the appearance of an angel. And Jesus is greater than the angels. That we sometimes have heard the message so much and we think we know Jesus so well that we take him for granted. And sometimes it's just... Good to be stopped and be overawed that Jesus is greater than the angels. He walked among us, he died for us, and he is now has a name greater than the angels. That he is reigning as Lord, and that he uh, he cares for us and, and seeks to sustain us and will give us the strength to carry on. And, and that's a very powerful form of encouragement in the days where we might grow weary. We again thank you for your interest in, in these matters. We look forward to continuing in Hebrews chapter 2 and beyond. And may the Lord bless, keep, guide, and direct you until we're able to meet again.